You can grab a seat. Lights. have watched a movie in the past 10 years. You have probably already seen this, right? At least once, probably multiple times. I know personally I have seen this ad so many times. I think I saw it in the actual theater, which I'm like, okay, what? Like, so we see this though, and, and this is made, whether you probably don't realize, but this was made by a Dutch anti-piracy group called Brain, okay? So Brain or Breen or something like that. They're the ones that created this ad, and they obviously are coming at it from a pretty strong angle, right, comparing it to, uh, you know, thievery and, and other areas, which, you know, it's true. That's on some level. That is, that is true. And they stop just short, though, of saying, like, it's stealing a puppy's life. You know, like, you're like, oh, and it's, it's a little harsh with those grungy late 90s letters. But we see... We see this and we appreciate, though, the sentiment, right? We appreciate the thought. We understand the cause, which is to save and protect the artists whose work is, literally, is legitimately being stolen, right? So this group, they say, you know, we want to protect those artists. Artists like uh, Melchior, Melchior Rietveld, okay? Mel- Melchior Rietveld, whose name sounds like a Harry Potter spell. Melchior, right? But he... <laughs> is a Dutch guy, and he is an artist who is a, a mu- musical artist who created the song that you heard in the background, that that was music, apparently, and it was created by Melchior Revel, and it was used in this video, in this ad campaign, without Melchior's consent. As in, Breen stole his music for their ad about not stealing music. And he took them to court and won $1.2 million that they owed him for stealing his music for an ad against stealing music. Do you see? <laughs> Do you see? Those Dutch, man. The nuts. Uh, but we see this kind of thing and we, we, we think, gosh, that's, that's insane. Like, who would you do? Like, why would you ever do that? Come on. Dutch, right? What's wrong with those guys? And yet the reality is, the truth is that we all find ourselves in that same position. We often find ourselves in that moment, in that position where we are claiming to believe or follow a certain standard or a certain practice, and yet in reality we are doing something different. All right, we have a name for that. We call it hypocrisy. We call those people hypocrites who say one thing and yet do another. And we find ourselves in that moment, in that position, not because we want to be hypocrites, right? It's not that we set out with the day thinking, I want to go against all my moral standards, right? It's not that's, that's not the decision, but what we do is we find ourselves deciding that it's a little too difficult to, to hold to that standard or that belief this time, right? So we just cut ourselves a little bit of slack. We let it slide just this once, just this once. And so we lower our standards. We find ourselves not reaching those same expectations that we hold for everyone else. And we lower our standards. We let it slide on, you know, what it really means to do our dishes, right? Well, you know, I I put it near the kitchen. That should kind of count. I threw it away, the plate, you know, so that's 
the same, right? We, we let it slide on those sorts of things. We decide, well, you know, I, I need to let it slide. I don't really need to be that kind of this guy because I've had a really rough day and he doesn't understand. And so I'm just not, I don't need to worry about him. I don't need to try to be loving or act graciously towards him. Well, I mean, I had a really busy week and so I know I'm not supposed to use these sort of uh, resources for this take-home test, or I'm not supposed to use these things for this paper. I know I'm supposed to cite my sources, but, you know, I, I'm just going to let that slide this, this, just this one time, or, or maybe I just really care about this person, or there's these things going on, so I'm going to let it slide on my, these sexual expectations, these boundaries that I've established for myself or for this relationship. I'm, I'm going to let those slide just this once. Just this once. And suddenly we take an honest look at ourselves and we realize that we are hypocrites. That we are saying one thing and yet doing another. We are unfaithful to what we claim to follow. All semester we're going through the book of Hebrews. And this is in an attempt to better understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Because Jesus is the big idea of Hebrews. I mean, it all revolves around him, who he is, what he's done. And one of the things that we realize or that we hear day in and day out is that we deserve the best, right? Our society, our culture is just geared up and, and so excited to tell us that we are absolutely the center of the universe and we deserve what's best in life. And so we want that, right? We want to own the best or we want to be the best. We want to know what's best. And yet what Hebrews tells us is that no matter what anyone thinks or says or does, Jesus is better. Jesus is always better. We've seen how he's better than the gods, the idols that we create for ourselves. We've seen that he's better than the identities that we can wrap ourselves up in. And this morning we're in chapter three and we're going to see the author compare Jesus to Moses, the biblical historical figure of Moses. And he's going to use Moses as both a warning and an encouragement. In chapter three, he shows us that Moses is a warning against that hypocrisy, against that unfaithfulness. But yet, in the midst of that, Moses is also an encouragement. Because when discipline comes from the Lord against that hypocrisy, against that unfaithfulness, in the midst of that discipline, we see grace. We see God pouring out grace on Moses. Why? Because Jesus is better than Moses. Because Jesus is the standard that Moses is judged by. But as we get there, right, as, as we move through this passage, we need to keep certain contextual ideas in mind. Right? We need to keep especially our audience in mind. Because when it starts off in chapter 3, verse 1, the, the author of Hebrews is speaking. He says, Holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who, appoint, to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Immediately we're seeing these ideas, and we're seeing Jesus and Moses and brothers. And we need to remember, though, in the midst of all this, right, to make sense of this content, we have to remember the context. The context for this, the audience that's being addressed, is most likely Jewish believers facing persecution, right? Jewish believers facing persecution. They're believers. That's why he calls them brothers. That's why he says they are sharing in a heavenly calling. That's why he calls them to consider Jesus because he's the high priest of our confession. The author is saying, look, you are believers. In other words, you have decided in and of yourselves, you have responded to the call of Christ. 
meaning you have decided that Jesus Christ should be the only object of your worship. Jesus Christ is the only identity that you need to wrap yourself up in. Do you always live that way? Does that look very, is that evident in your life at all times? Of course not. But at some point, these people, these Jewish men and women, they decided, no, I want to believe in what Jesus Christ has done. I want to accept his forgiveness for my sins. And so he says, he is the apostle, the high priest of our confession. And then he keeps going. He says, he, he was faithful just as Moses was faithful. He says, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. He says, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. He's saying, Jesus and Moses, I'm going to compare these two guys together. Jesus is counted worthy of more glory than Moses. But Moses, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Now we need to realize again as we're reading this, that audience, those Jewish believers under persecution, they're Jewish. What that means is that these men and these women that are being written to, they love Moses. They love Moses so much. I cannot I cannot communicate how much they love Moses. They love Moses almost as much as we love this fine woman right here, right? <laughs> the one and only Reveille. Well, now this is the fourth Reveille. There's not just one. But this is Reveille. And no matter what her number is, no matter what that number is on that little thing, she is a lady and a saint. And we love her, right? Why? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I just do. I came into Texas A&M uh, knowing kind of of Reveille, uh, discovering early on that she was buried. All of the Reveilles are buried outside of Kyle Field with their own scoreboard pointed at their graves just in case they want to watch the game from the grave. And that's weirding me out. I came into college freshman year realizing that. I was like, okay, that's a, that's a little odd. But you know what? I left about four years later, and I decided that's not enough, right? <laughs> she deserves more. What more? I don't know. Any, anything. Anything for her. We love Reveille. She is the highest ranking officer in the Corps. She's like, if she barks at stuff, things happen. I don't know. Like, class gets out. It's crazy. This is someone that we all, like, no one's going to be like, yeah, well, Reveille's like, I don't know. She's like not that great. No one says that. And if you try, you better stop, because <laughs> it's not true. We love her. And the Jews, man, they loved Moses. And so all of a sudden, the author is saying, well, yeah, Moses was faithful as a servant, but Christ is faithful as a son. The author compares two huge parts. He compares Moses and Christ in two ways. He compares both their position and their performance. And Christ is better in both. He compares their position saying that Moses, yeah, he was a servant, but Jesus, he is the son. Moses is the servant in the house, the servant of God. Jesus is the son of God. This is the difference between living in a rent house or living in your parents' rent house, right? In one case, maybe you're like my roommates and decide, hey, we're just living in this house. We should paint a dartboard on the wall inside the house, because that makes sense, right? You, that's, that's that kind of idea. You're living in your parents' rent house. You say, hey, let's all use coasters 
for our plates just in case. Like, let's, <laughs> let's be careful. Jimmy, you need to mow that flower bed. Like, we need to get this under control. Why? Because there's a different level of responsibility. There's a different position in that. He's saying Jesus Christ has a higher position. He is the son of God. More than that, it's his performance. He's, he's faithful. He's faithful over all of God's house. And he starts off by saying, well, yeah, Moses, for the most part, when we look back at Moses, we see faithfulness for sure. But he's about to launch the very end. This is just the first half of six. By the second half of six, he starts to launch into an explanation of how Moses, in fact, was not always faithful. How Moses, in fact, became a hypocrite. He goes into great detail explaining how Moses and his gang of Israelites that wandered the desert for 40 years, how they were un faithful, how they fell away. And he's not doing it. He's not going into that explanation just to like tear Moses down and make everyone mad. He doesn't do it because somehow making Moses look worse makes Jesus look better. That's not his goal. His goal in that is to explain how Moses became unfaithful, what that looked like so that we can avoid the same mistakes. Because what the author is realizing, what he's communicating is that faithfulness is always built. Faithfulness is always built over time. Right? That's why you don't propose on the first date. You go on at least two. <laughs> and then go for it. I don't care. It's not my wedding. So you can do that. But you don't generally do it on the first date. Some people, I mean, I know there's stories like World War II, like they got married after an hour. And you're like, okay, great. You know, and sometimes it works out for the most part. It takes time, right? You build that over time. Time and unfaithfulness works in the exact same way. Unfaithfulness builds up over time. It's staggering when we look at the amount of adultery in our nation, the amount of of what we call affairs, because it's a nicer way to say adultery. When we look at it, man, those those affairs, that adultery, that, that cheating on spouses, it doesn't always just pop up out of nowhere. Generally, it is built up over time, following sexual sin after sexual sin. That unfaithfulness builds up. It culminates in some big moment. Whenever we catch people in fraud, guys get arrested for white-collar crimes of embezzlement or whatever, nine times out of ten, what they discover is that there were a number of smaller ethical kind of loopholes or moral things or, or problems and, and cheating and, and minor fraud that led up to that big moment. Our unfaithfulness is built up over time. And so what we need to do, what the author is helping us do is identify unfaithfulness right from the get-go. To look at the symptoms of this sickness. He's saying, I'm going to point out what happened to Moses and his people, not so that you think worse of them, not so that Jesus looks better. I'm going to point it out so that you can avoid those same mistakes because you need to catch it early. So he starts off talking about what happened. What happened to those people? What happened to Moses, to those Israelites he was leading? He starts off by proclaiming, that Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, as, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. He points this out because the first thing that Moses and his people did is they lost hope. The first mistake, kind of that first step in towards unfaithfulness was that they lost hope. And when I say hope, man, this is biblical hope. In other words, this is a, a, an eager and certain expectation for the future. 
right? We use hope in a lot of different ways. Sometimes we'll use hope uh, as more of just sort of a wish. Like, oh, I wish this would happen. Sort of, in other words, we are eager, and yet we're not certain, right? We say, oh, I hope that my test is canceled tomorrow for snow day. The high is 87. <laughs> but I hope we'll see, you know, I don't know. We hope that. That's, that's a wish, though, right? That's not biblical hope. That's, that's eager, but that's not certain. Sometimes we use hope uh, as meaning more of dread. It's not dread. Biblical hope is not dread, meaning that we are not eager at all, and yet we are certain. Right? Like, I hope, I hope that my girlfriend also forgot it was Valentine's yesterday. I hope that that graffiti on my car was from a different Cynthia. Right? Like, we hope those things... Because we're not eager, but yet we're certain of what it actually is, right? So that's dread. This is different. Our biblical idea of hope, it is eager and it is certain. He says, and that's what they lost. They lost it. He says, but we don't need to lose sight of our hope. And what is our hope in, right? What is our hope grounded in? He says that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He says, we as believers, man, we're going to see this idea of hope throughout the rest of the book. We're going to talk about it in a few weeks. He says, we as believers, our hope ultimately is in Jesus Christ. He is the anchor of the soul. I love that. Love that language. He's the anchor of our souls. In other words, when a storm hits, that's what I grab onto. When things get crazy, that's where I'm grounded. I'm grounded with that anchor. I hold fast to that anchor. Even when life is crazy or things are terrible or even when things are great and I'm just amazed by how great everything is, I should be grounded. I should be holding onto the anchor of Jesus Christ. I need to realize at any given moment that Jesus Christ is my life, is my salvation, is my Savior. That all this brokenness, that all this destruction, that all these family problems or friend issues or, or things just in my life that people don't know about because I don't want to tell them, all of those issues, man, they've been solved by Jesus Christ. All those issues, all those sins, all those problems, Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again for them. Not that they would all just go away in the present, that I would feel great all the time but that even in the midst of it, I would have an anchor. That even in the midst of all this turmoil, I would know there will come a day where Jesus Christ will reign victoriously over all of creation. And I will reign with him if I trust in him, if I put my faith in him, if I recognize that my brokenness has no solution other than his forgiveness. That's my anchor. And that's where I'm grounded. That's my foundation. It's the anchor for my soul. And Moses, the Israelites of that time, they didn't know the name of Christ, but they had a a God who loved them, who talked with them, who was with them, who promised one day a Messiah. They had a God that they could have put their faith in, that many of them did put their faith in, and yet they still lost that hope. They still found themselves thrown about in the storm. Because, man, we need that anchor, right? We need something to hold on to. When my wife and I had our daughter uh, about eight weeks ago, uh, we were just super excited. We're in the hospital, and we're hanging out with her, and we're like, oh, Charlotte, you're, you're the best. And she was sleeping, though, a lot. Like, they sleep a whole lot. 
and at first. And so we were like, wow, this is, this is kind of crazy. I guess she's just super chill. This is so great. And one of the ladies at the hospital, she gave us a handout. She said, hey, just so you know, you're going to want to read this piece of paper. And it was, it was just called Baby's Second Night. And she's like, you need to read this piece of paper because the reality is that after about 24 hours, your baby's going to come out of their kind of just worn out stupor, right? Because being born is really intense. <laughs> I was there. <laughs> it's intense. <laughs> and so the tires of the baby out. And so the lady said, look, so the first 24 hours, man, they are, they're kind of out of it. But after that 24 hours, during the second night, that baby, it changes. And people are like, who is this baby? Who gave me this? I don't want, I don't want this baby. Like people are freaked out. So, so read this paper. It'll tell you what to expect. It'll give you tips and pointers. And we're like, okay, yeah, sure, whatever. She's really great though. So you don't, and then all of a sudden, that second night rolls around. After those 24 hours, man, she did. She came out of her days with a roar, right? She just needed to let us know because all of a sudden she's realizing I'm not in a womb and she just freaks out. And so in that moment, Man, we, what do we do? We grab that paper. We're like, oh my gosh, what's happening? Like, what is happening? Where's, what's, what's wrong? Where, who will, will we live? Like, and we had that. We had that anchor, man. We needed that in the midst of that storm. We need something to ground us. And yet, oftentimes, when we know that that anchor there, we, we know that Jesus Christ has died for our sins. We know that this brokenness is temporary. We know that this world will go away. And yet, even in the midst of the storms, man, we lose sight of that hope. We lose sight of that anchor. We release our hold on that grounding. That's what Moses and his people did over and over and over again. Generally, when it came to water, they would be thirsty and they would always, oh my gosh, so many times they would lose hope. They would say, oh my gosh, the Lord's going to, we're going to die. We're going to look just in a minute at a passage where they, they, there's no water. And they're like, oh, we're gone. We're goners. We're all dead. They go to a land that God has promised them. He says, you're going to go into this land. I'm going to be with you. You're going, to, you're going to live here. It's going to be amazing. They show up at the land. They see the people already in the land. They're like, those guys are way too big. I have no hope. And they just, they, they give up. They lose sight of that hope in the midst of that storm. That's why it's so important for us to remember in the midst of our storms that we have a hope in Jesus Christ. That's why it's important to remember scripture, honestly. That's why we memorize scripture. So that when those times come, when those storms hit us, we're grounded. We have that anchor that we hold on to. We say, no, like, I know what Christ has said. I know what the Lord has promised. I'm going to hold on to that hope. I'm going to let that be an anchor for my soul. Because what's crucial, what's, what's terrifying, is that when we lose that hope, we immediately then pass into complaining. If we lose hope, we complain, we, we grumble. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Because when you lose hope, your heart will harden. And when your heart is hardened, you start complaining, man, you start grumbling. You start deciding, man, I just, what's the point? What's going on? And we complain. We grumble. Why? Because our hearts have been hardened because we have no hope. Those bleachers in Kyle Field, they're a little bit more uncomfortable when we're losing the game, Right? When we're watching that football game, and they were like, yeah, this is really great. And then we're down by whatever, like 50 points. And we're like, ah, this, this bleacher is hot. Right? And we start to think, like, this, that guy's really close. <laughs> Watch it. You're right? Like, we get upset. We get uncomfortable. And we're like, man, I'm itchy. I've been staying a really long time. And how long is this band going to play? And I don't want to pass it back. Right? Why? Why? 
because we've lost our hope. And when we lose that hope, our hearts harden. We begin to just complain. We're like, man, this place is, this place is, I don't like it. I don't like this one bit. That's what we see with Moses and his people. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord. They camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. They get thirsty. And so they say, oh my gosh. Therefore, they quarreled with Moses. They said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses. And they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They say, why would you deliver us from Egypt, from slavery, from servitude, from from death, certain death? Why would you lift us out of that only to let us die of thirst in the desert? So what's going on? What's amazing about this passage, what's amazing about this moment, is that it is directly following chapter 16, right? 17 comes after 16. And 16, we're literally where they just were, the chapter before, is the first time that they received manna from heaven. In other words, there comes a time where they're like, man, we're really hungry. And God's like, oh yeah, no problem, here's some bread. And just bread comes from the sky. Every morning they would wake up, they would go out. There was what they called manna, it was bread on the ground. And so they would gather and they would eat it. That was how they nourished themselves. That's how God fed his people for 40 years in the desert. This is literally right after that moment. These people are standing around eating bread that fell from the sky. And they're like, I'm thirsty. What's up? You going to try to kill us with thirst? Give me some more of that heaven bread. You know, like that's, when we see that, we're like, oh my gosh, like what's wrong with you? Like they've lost Hope, and when they've lost that hope, man, their hearts are hard, and they start to complain in the midst of this moment, this miraculous time. And so they complain, they say, we need this water, and we're not having it, and oh my gosh, and they're grumbling, they're complaining, and man, that's why it's so crucial that we remember, that we see this, and we realize, man, if our hearts were filled with gratitude, there's no room for grumbling. A heart filled with gratitude has no room for grumbling. What were they doing? They were neglecting to look at what the Lord had already done for them. They were forgetting to to thank the Lord for that deliverance out of Egypt. They're forgetting to thank the Lord for that bread that just on the ground. And so they grumbled, they complained, their hearts were hardened. It's a dangerous step. Because when we lose that hope, when we harden our hearts and start to grumble, complain, it just keeps building we see that the, your fathers, where your fathers, they put me to the test, saw my works for 40 years. They began to test God. In other words, they began to question the Lord. They began to rebel against God. Without a future confidence or a present satisfaction, I will find myself questioning God's authority. I will find myself rebelling against him. A friend of mine was putting his daughter to bed and she was like pot, she was like three or something. Like she, was, she was old, right? And so she it didn't want to go to bed, though, because sometimes that's what happens when you're three, three and a half. And so she, he told her, though, like, look, baby, we got to go to bed. And just go potty one more time. Right? That's part of the ritual. You need to go potty one more time before we go to bed. And she said, fine. She goes into the bathroom, and she sits on the edge of the bathtub and just sits there and looks at him. He says, darling, that is not where we go potty, right? Like, this isn't right. You need to sit on the potty to go potty. That's how that works. And she looks at him, dead in the eye, says, 
I go potty here all the time. And stuck her chin out. That's what I love. She goes, I go potty here all the time. Which he knew wasn't true, right? Like if that happened, he would be aware of that happening. He knew it wasn't true. And yet in that moment, man, she just, she had lost her hope, right? She was like, oh my gosh, I have to go to bed. She decided that she would harden her heart. She was like, oh, this is the worst. I don't want to go to bed. And so in that moment, when her dad gives her this simple command, easy to follow, says, please, you know, just go potty one more time. She says, well, who made you king of everything? I'm going to go potty in the bathtub, right? She had that moment. That's a three and a half year old. But that's where we find ourselves, man. That's what we do. We find ourselves without that hope, hardening our hearts, starting to complain, and then starting to question the Lord, testing the Lord. We rebel against his authority. That's what we do. That's what Moses did. God told Moses, take the staff, assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother. Tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them, give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. So basically, they're in another moment, this is Numbers 20, where uh, the Israelites, again, are like, hey, we're really thirsty. What's the deal? And so God tells Moses, all right, just go talk to a rock, tell the rock to give give him water, and it'll happen. So then Moses and Aaron, they gathered the assembly together before the rock, and Moses said to them, hear now. You rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, struck the rock with his staff twice. Water came out abundantly. The congregation drank and their livestock. God told Moses to speak to the rock. But what does Moses do? He yells at the people, calls them rebels, and then he hits the rock. Why? Because it wasn't just the congregation. It wasn't just the Israelites at large that had lost hope, that had hardened their hearts, that began complaining. Moses was in that exact same situation. Moses himself had lost hope in those rebels. His heart was hardened. He began complaining and, and calling them out. And so what does he do next? He rebels against the Lord's authority. God gave him a very clear commandment, and Moses goes the opposite direction. hits the rock instead. Questions the Lord's authority. This is a slippery slope. And we need to recognize it. We need to remember that, man, whenever we rebel in this way, when we go against the Lord's authority, when we question and test him, man, there are consequences. There are always consequences. That's why Hebrews points out that this is the Lord speaking. He says, therefore, I was provoked with that generation. And I said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. God brings discipline against the Israelites. He says, because of these things, because of that unfaithfulness, because you claim to be my people, you claim to follow me as your God, and yet you are hypocrites who are falling away, going astray. Because of that, I will bring discipline and I will deny you my rest. Never enter. And sure enough, that generation of Israelites, they wandered the desert for 40 years. The Lord said, this is where you're going to die. I'm going to deny you this promised land where you were going to wind up. And they all died, with the exception of a few who were faithful. 
They all died. Even Moses. Why? Because they lost their hope. Because their hearts became hardened. Because they started grumbling, complaining. They began testing, questioning the Lord. They began openly rebelling against him. And so the Lord said, I'm going to step in. I'm going to bring some discipline. And you don't get this rest. So what's key for us, and we're going to talk about this in the next few weeks as well, but what, what is that rest? What exactly is this discipline? What is God denying them? When we look at this situation, when we look at these Israelites, when we see this idea of rest, we need to understand that the Lord is speaking about an experience of his blessing. He's talking about a, 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 a gracious offering, a blessing, a gift. He says, you're not going to get to experience that. He's not speaking about their salvation. He's not talking about the life or death of their souls. Some Christians will take that stance, right? And they're genuine believers who take the opposite stance. They say, no, like this rest, what's happening right here is the Lord is, uh, he's negating the relationship or he's saying that you never really had this relationship. He says, you can fall away, you can rebel so much that I'm going to take away the salvation that you would have had otherwise. But the problem with that stance, the problem with that interpretation is that it's ignoring the context, right? We've got to keep this context always in mind. They're ignoring the context of the illustration that the author's using. He's talking about Moses. He's talking about these Israelites. Like I said, Moses was in the same boat. Moses was denied this exact same rest. As soon as he hit that rock, the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Sure enough, he kind of lets Moses see the promised land, but Moses never gets to step foot in the promised land, Canaan, what is now Israel. He says, you don't ever get to go in there because of your unfaithfulness, because of your rebellion. Moses himself was denied that rest. So does that mean that Moses lost out on his salvation? Our instinct is to say, well, no, that's crazy. But how do we know that? Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother. He led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. This is a, a, a story, uh, one of the things that Jesus did, where we call it the transfiguration, uh, because he was transfigured, and that basically means that he changed, right? Like Optimus Prime from a truck to a robot. You're like, what? But this is better because he is God. And he transfigures before him. He shows his true self. He says, this is who I am. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. He became this, he revealed just a, just a glimpse of who he really was. And in this moment, as he's transfigured before his disciples, and they're like, holy cow, like what's going on? Two other people pop up. Behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Moses and Elijah. In other words, we can know for certain that Moses was saved, that his faith in God and in God's promises and his person and promises, that faith saved Moses. His soul was secure. He was in heaven with God. And what's beautiful is not only are we assured of his salvation, we're like, okay, yeah, I guess 
that rest had to have been something different. But what's beautiful is that even in the midst of that discipline, right, where God said, Moses, you're not going to step foot in that promised land. Where is Moses right now? He's in the promised land. Why? Because Jesus Christ wanted to talk to him. And suddenly in the midst of that discipline, we see grace. We see the Lord allowing Moses to still step foot in that land. Why? Because Jesus is better than Moses. Because Jesus is perfectly faithful. And because anyone who places their trust in Christ, anyone who puts their faith in Christ, is then given the, the, the righteousness that he earned, is given the perfection that he performed, is suddenly made into someone, when God looks at us, he says, wow, it's not just that your debt is wiped clean, it's that you have been given, you've been credited righteousness. So in the midst of that moment, God looks down at Moses and he says, you know what, your faith is in me, your faith was in the Messiah that you, whose name you didn't yet know. This is because of that, you're secure. I mean, your salvation is, is assured. And even more than that, even in the midst of my discipline, that was still real, that was still painful, even in the midst of that discipline, there was grace. And we need to remember this because the reality is that there are many of us who are headed towards discipline, who are in the midst of experiencing the Lord's discipline. And I'm telling you that in the midst of that moment, we need to remember that God is disciplining us out of love. We'll see later in Hebrews that he says that he disciplines his children as a father disciplines his children. A loving father will discipline his kids because it sets them on the right path. It's what's best for them. That's why the Lord disciplines us. He disciplines us out of love. And in the midst of that discipline, he still gives us grace. We don't need to lose hope. We don't need to decide, oh, this is the wrathful God who will never love me ever again. It's not true. We still have that hope. Our salvation is still secure. But we need to realize that while our salvation is secure, our relationship can become strained, right? The discipline needs to happen because our relationship can become strained. It can become damaged. Charlotte, my daughter, who's almost two weeks old, seen here, uh, is, I don't know, wearing a shirt that points out that I'm her father. Uh, she, she uh, is always going to be my daughter. She will always be my daughter. Always. Even when she gets poop on the wall, like she did <laughs> recently. <laughs> Even in that moment, she was still my daughter. Now, if she continues <laughs> to get poop on the wall, you know, in let's say 10 years, our relationship will become strained, right? There will be some damage to our relationship. We will have to have conversations. Discipline will need to happen. Doctor's visits will probably need to happen because there might be something very wrong. Our relationship will, there will be a tension there, right? It will start to kind of break down if she continues in that acting. But will she still be my daughter? Absolutely. Will her position change? Absolutely not. She's still my daughter. She's always my daughter. Our salvation is secure. You are a son or a daughter of the Lord Most High if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing will ever change that. Christ himself tells us that nothing can snatch you out of that. Paul, Paul tells us that nothing can separate us from that sort of love. But our relationship can become strained. That's why we need to be careful. That's why the author of Hebrews tells us if we see this unfaithfulness, if we see this hypocrisy, we need to take care lest 
there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading to you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it has been called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, he's saying, look, you're never going to avoid sin altogether. You're never going to be able to avoid it. You're going to find yourself being unfaithful. You're going to find yourself in hypocrisy. It's going to happen. He says, but what you can do, rather than focusing all of your time and attention on trying to avoid it outright, is instead you look for it and you call it out when you see it. You surround yourself with men and women who are willing to exhort you, who are willing to call you out. So for you, this semester, this week, maybe today, I would encourage you to find that community. Maybe you have a good group of, of, of believers that you hang with or you run with or do whatever. Are you calling each other out? Do you look for that sin? Do you keep each other accountable in that way? Maybe you find yourself in not Christian community. Maybe you have community, but it's people that aren't following the God that you follow, aren't professing faith in the Jesus Christ that you believe in. Maybe you find yourself where you're like, man, I don't, I don't really have anyone around me right now in any sort of capacity. Every single one of us needs to find that Christian community tell you one great first step. Every single year, we have about a dozen uh, in, or fellows, right? basically interns. And they work within our college ministry, and these are young men and young women who are probably just out of college, just a couple steps ahead of you. And they are headed on a life, uh, many of them of full-time ministry, some of them not. And they are working full-time all day, every day for you. So you should Talk to us, man. If you have any questions about community, if you have any questions about, I mean, where do I find this? Who can call me out? Who, who can I talk to? Email us. Talk, talk to me. Talk to one of our fellows. They're, they'll be in the back of the service when you're leaving. Talk to them, man. Th- their job is you. That's what they're here for. Talk to us. Or maybe you're like, well, I don't want to you know, go that route. and That's kind of weird. I don't want to talk to them because they're kind of scary. Well, you can go instead to a small group. Our small groups kicked off a few weeks ago. You can still sign up. And our small groups, they don't just exist so you can learn the Bible and do these word studies and all that stuff. That's a good, great skill, and that's what you need to grow closer to the Lord. But they also exist to provide community, to provide this exhortation, to provide you with that fellowship of people who will call you out, who will catch that sin, catch that unfaithfulness early so that it doesn't build up, so that we can set our sights back on Christ, so we can grab a hold of that anchor, No matter what stage you're in, man, you need that. So let's ask the Lord to reveal it to us. God, we, we thank you that you are so good, that you have provided opportunity for us to have community. That, Lord, you are able to set aside uh, the differences that we have in our interests or our occupations or our majors, that, God, all of those things just sort of fall away in light of our shared belief in Jesus Christ. God, there is nothing like Christian community. So God, we pray that we would find it. God, we would embrace it. If you would take a moment, just ask the Lord to, to show you, man, where, where do you need to recenter on that hope in Christ? Maybe it's for the very first time. Maybe you've never placed your hope in Christ. Ask the Lord to to convict you of that. Or maybe it's just you've lost sight, you're just wandering away, you're straying in in this area or that area. Ask the Lord to show you where do you need to grab a hold of that anchor 
for your soul? Where do you need to recenter your hope? If you would take another moment and ask the Lord to show you, I mean, where's that community that He's calling you to? Is it a just a tweak that needs to be made within your current friend group? Is it a uh, a new friend group you need to find? Is it a, a, a small group that you can join right here at Grace? Is it a conversation you need to have with a, a staff member on this college ministry team? Look, just ask the Lord to guide your steps this week, that you'd be bold and motivated to send that text or make that call, to show up on Thursday at that small group. Ask the Lord that you wouldn't just hear these words and, and let them fall away, but instead that you would hear his charge for community, his charge for faithfulness, that you would hear those things that would motivate you to move and and act and do something. Ask him those things right now.